Would you open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26, verse 57 and following. We continue our series, Following Jesus. And uh, Chris, I don't know if you were the one that put that new background that was during the songs with the Bible at the bottom. Okay. Some bit. Richard maybe picked that out. Myra, Myra, Myra did that. Yeah. Well, multiple people can handle these things. I just know it gets done. I don't know who does it every week. So shame on me. But anyhow, I love that with the Bible at the bottom of it because it reminds us how we do church here at Southview. That the sacraments are not central for us. There are other churches, particularly the Catholic Church, in which, you know, taking the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, is central to their worship because of what they believe in regards to that. But we have the Bible as central in our worship service because we believe God's Word is the bread of life. Amen? And it is not by a symbol such as a cracker or grape juice in our case, but it is by God's Word that we grow and that we are fed spiritually. And so that's why we have that. And as we follow together in Scripture today, if you don't have your own copy of the Bible, there's one in the pew back in front of you, or you can get a Bible app or read it from the screen and follow along with us as we get to Matthew chapter 26. What we see happening here is this idea of, as I called it, when injustice rules. Because we could consider this from a merely historical reporting viewpoint, And I looked at preaching a sermon that way, and I went, man, that'll be boring to preach, much less listen to. That was maybe supposed to be funnier than that. Okay. But then I looked deeper, and I thought, you know what? There's some terrible stuff going on here. Here's one more instance of compounded circumstances against Jesus and the way people feel about Jesus in which they are really being unjust towards Jesus and treating him unfairly. And I don't like that. And I think if I look a little more deeply, I can find that for our church family to help us see that. You see, what's happening here is a trial of Jesus. There were two trials of Jesus before he was crucified. The first one here was a Jewish trial. The Jewish people of which he was a Jew Uh, And the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, did not like Jesus. They were in power and they had prestige and they had, because of that, self-righteousness and self-deceptions. And they had this profound challenge rising against them from this guy who had no power and no prestige or position, but they called him a false prophet because he spoke against their traditions And the heart of the Jewish trial is that the person of the accused, Jesus, is not what he has done, but who he is. And what we're going to see as we go through this scripture this morning is an example of how to respond when we are accused unjustly, when we are treated poorly because of Jesus in this terrible happenstance. So this passage of Scripture today has a parallel passage in Mark 14 and in John 18. Again, if your Bible might even have the little notes like mine does in the italic smaller print. And if you were to read John 18, you would see before the scene that we're going to read here in Matthew that takes place with Caiaphas, the high priest, and all the Sanhedrin in their council meeting chambers, that those who arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane took him to Annas. 
Now, Annas had been the high priest about 20 years before, and this is in John 18, chapter, verse 13 and 14. You can just write that down. This dude, I don't know who, no, well, I shouldn't say this. I don't know much about this dude, but here's what I do know. Annas must have been sharp, and he must have been conniving, and he accumulated power. Here's what I mean. It was 20 years before this time that Annas was the high priest. But he was, did such a good job grabbing power for himself and influence at that time that for the next 20 years he had one of his five sons and now his son-in-law as the high priest. It's like they were appointing guys by proxy. Not because of their character, not because of their virtue, not because of their knowledge of the law, but because they were related to Annas. It just sounds crooked to begin with, doesn't it? So Annas set up the whole system that was going on in the temple. You remember the part where Jesus went in and overthrew the money changers, tables, and all that sort of stuff? Annas was the guy that set that up. That it had to be a certain type of coin, and the money changer, lenders, not lenders, changers, made an exorbitant fee. And then even though you could have brought in your own animal that you had raised yourself, no, they couldn't do that. You had to buy an animal from a special flock. And guess who made a healthy cut of the profit of all these things? Annas did. Matter of fact, the courtyards around the temple that Jesus went in and protest were called Annas Bazaar. In, you know, colloquial terms. Because everybody knew this guy had all the power and all the authority. So when they arrest him, they take Jesus to Annas' house. But then Annas, because he's not the real high priest, even though he's still pulling the strings, sends him on to Caiaphas. And that's where we find Jesus this morning. And so I want to ask you if you're able to stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word. And we're going to read Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 through 68. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards. The excuse me, the chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that uh, these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting in the right hand of the Mighty One and coming down on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and you have heard his spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fist. Others slapped him and said to him, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and we hear of what's going on here. And it just, it hurts us. It tears us up, even if we've never heard this story before. To know that a man who's been falsely accused and folks bringing false witnesses against him and then to end up with them beating him and hitting him 
it doesn't sound like real justice to us, but injustice. And so, God, we pray that as we see how Jesus reacts and as we seek to understand the situation that's happening here, that you'd speak to us by your Holy Spirit. And we would learn this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all. You can be seated. Your first point on your outline is that Jesus was tried wrongly. Jesus was tried wrongly. Now, I almost had was wrongly tried, and I thought, oh, that's a split infinitive. People might get upset about that. I talked to Vince Cogley about that. Vince said, oh, the rules don't really apply anymore. Vince is a, a writer and a, a sharp fella. Uh, but I said, you know, Vince, we've got all kinds of smart people in our congregation, so I'm not splitting any infinitives here. So if you want to, like, put some arrows and split it back, you can. Um, but Jesus was tried wrongly. This should not have happened this way. Normally, in the Jewish religious system, there was all sorts of checks and balances. So much so that I wonder if our American judiciary system learned something from them, or the Roman judiciary system learned something from them, or how and what. And it was to go to the nth degree to protect the accused of being falsely accused, uh, or being inappropriately Um, jailed or anything else like that. But what's happening here is they're breaking at least 14 different of their laws, their rules, their procedures for how things are to go about. This is the middle of the night. It's not supposed to happen at the middle of the night. That's just one of them. We're going to get to some more as you go along. But they're breaking the rules and they have the ability to act as judge and jury and pronounce a death sentence over Jesus, which is what they want to do, But remember, they don't have the ability to crucify him or to kill him. That lies in the hands of the ruling power, politically at that time, of the Romans. So that's why there's two trials. There's the Jewish trial we're dealing with tonight, and the Roman trial we'll deal with in the future. And that's what's happening here. So my question for you is this. is How do I react to rule breakers? How do I react to rule breakers? I don't know about you, but I don't like them. Except, of course, when it's me. And I have a reason to break the rules, amen? I mean, if it's my reason to break the rules, then it must be right. But if it's somebody else's reason to break the rules, it must be wrong. You know, I never did it that way, or it was someone else's fault, or something like that. My kids, um, all three of them, and now we have our last one in his last year, have gone to Zeman Elementary School. And Zeman Elementary School, like many of the schools here in Lincoln, Nebraska, has a recommended traffic pattern. You see my quotes there. There's, there I think it would be easier if the city would just come in and put a thing that says one way during school hours and put a flashing light and occasionally put a policeman there to write people tickets or at least say you can't go this way, right? Because the idea is to have all the traffic flowing one way around the school for convenience, but also for safety, Because here's what's happening. As all of us are going north like we're supposed to because we follow the rules, there's always at least one person that wants to be a salmon and go the wrong way, right? And so you have these salmon swimming upstream, and they're always the ones with their hair on fire that have no peripheral vision because their kid's late, and and they're about to hit some kid, and I'm like, "Ah, I can't stand it. 
I want to stand at the far end of the school property and I'll get myself one of those parking vests from Silvana, you know, the orange vest, so I look official with the stripes on it and the reflective stuff. And I might even go get myself a flashlight with the cone thingy on it and, you know, just direct people. Nope, you can't go here. You got to go this way. We will have no scoff patterns when I'm around. Because that's what I call them, scoff patterns. It's a pattern, so it's not the law. They're scoff patterns. And I get all uppity about people that go the wrong direction. And yes, it is a safety and a convenience order. It's voluntary. It's recommended. It's suggested. Yada, yada. The principal sends out these kindly worded emails that sometimes are... She verges on not being politically correct anymore because she gets really about this herself. I think about this. That's just a traffic pattern. How many things do I do in my life daily that I make excuses for the reason I'm going the wrong way? And it's not that I'm going the wrong way down a recommended traffic pattern. It's that I'm clearly breaking God's law and I'm sinning. Yet I can excuse myself. And I'm the one that breaks the rules. These guys are breaking every rule in their rule book in order to bring Jesus to trial. Let's go on and see more. Verse 59. So the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. I mean, it's just right there, right? This is Matthew reporting later, but he knew what was going on and he knew why. Everybody did. But they did not find any, though many False witnesses came forward. So, number two there for you is that Jesus was accused falsely. Jesus was accused falsely. You hear that repeated throughout this. Here's the amazing thing. As public a figure as Jesus was, he grew up in Galilee. There might have been people from there. He'd been back and forth to Jerusalem numerous times, dozens of times, countless dozens of times in his ministry. He had taught publicly. He had healed people. Everybody knew Jesus. Jesus was the rock star of his day, right? He could, anything he said, anything he done could have been reported by people, but nobody could give one accusation against him breaking God's law. That's amazing. In my opinion, there's no better testimony to the flawless, sinless perfection of Jesus' character than the fact that even when they were trying to get up false witnesses, they couldn't even get a witness to speak ill against him because nothing he did was wrong. So he was falsely accused. The only infractions they could bring him up against were their man-made, legalistic, unbiblical, rabbinic traditions. Not God's law. Not what we know as our Old Testament. It's all the stuff that the rabbis and the Sanhedrin added on top of what we call the Bible. That they got him on. What's it say there as we go on? Finally, this is in the middle of verse 60. Two came forward. Legally, they had to have at least two. So they're trying to keep up the sham going on here. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, write down on your outline, John 2.19. If you go back and read John 2.19, you'll see he's not talking about the physical temple. 
He's talking about his body. He's talking about the fact that he's going to be buried, and in three days he's going to be risen again. And that's not just the only difference. It's the version and the way that it is reported is reported as a bit of a half-truth. Kind of like reporting these days with one side not liking the other side politically. You know, the Democrats say a little bit this way, the Republicans say a little bit that way, and the truth is somewhere in the middle, or the truth's not there at all, right? That this is what they're doing. They're saying some of Jesus' words, but we're twisting them just enough to make it a capital offense, because the rabbinic Sanhedrin laws included that if you did something against the temple, you could die. And so that's what needed to be said. And remember, these were false witnesses. Caiaphas, the high priest at the time, and the Sanhedrin, made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees, both of these ruling parties, were so intent on putting an end to Jesus that they were willing to break all sorts of rules And accuse him falsely. So my question is, what is my response to lies about me? Most of us don't like lies in general, but if they're about us, we certainly don't like them, do we? We get very incensed. I don't know about you, but when I hear that somebody's lied about me, I get this visceral reaction where I get kind of a knot in my throat and I feel flush and the hair on the back of my neck. And it's just like a sickly feeling because I think, why would somebody say that about me? And is there any truth in that? And then I, of course, I get mad at that person. Then I want to make excuses. You know, then my rational Christian side comes back and says, well, maybe they misunderstood something, or maybe I misunderstood them. Or, you know, I'm try- but I go back and forth on this emotional roller coaster. So here you have these guys twisting what they heard in order to trump up a charge against Jesus. Friends, we don't have to ask if lying is right or wrong, right? It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's basic. The Ninth Commandment, thou shalt not lie. Bear false witness among, uh, of your neighbor, but it's, the short version is lie. Psalm, or excuse me, Proverbs 6.19, you can write that one down, says that a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who so, uh, a false witness breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Listen to what Zechariah 8, 16 and 17 says. These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other. Render truth and sound judgment in your courts. Do not plot evil against other, And do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. Everything the prophet Zechariah said right there. These guys had broken because they were so intent on framing Jesus. Proverbs 12.22 says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are His delight. I can hear Larry the Cucumber saying that from some VeggieTales movie I've seen, right? That nasally Larry the Cucumber voice. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are His delight. Next time you're challenged to lie, even if you think you can get away with it, I pray that you hear Larry the Cucumber, or at least that you hear me, saying to you, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. But what's the end of that passage of Scripture? But those who act faithfully, tell the truth, are a delight to God. So let's move on with our Scripture. Your third point on your outline is that Jesus was cornered 
deliberately. Jesus was cornered. I'm just using a vernacular that we understand. It says, then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer this? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remains silent. It's interesting to me what's going on here. Caiaphas, the high priest, has been presiding over this. This is his chance to get Jesus, to frame him, to get rid of him. And they've had all these witnesses and they couldn't find anything against him. Finally, two other false witnesses come and twist Jesus' word. And now Caiaphas is like, I'm going in for the kill. And I'm going to try to get him to admit that this is right. But Jesus won't admit it. Have you ever been in a room where the silence was deafening? That's what's happening here. These false accusations are ringing in the ears of the Sanhedrin as Jesus stands silent. Look at what happens next. The drama is, is, is getting high here. Then the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. This was Caiaphas' last roll of the dice. An equation that under oath, legally bound to answer, Jesus would answer. And they'd have him trapped, cornered, framed, confessed by his own words. Yet the problem is, this is Caiaphas breaking another rule, breaking another law. In a capital offense case in the Jewish courts, you were not allowed to use this kind of oath that would lead to the accused, um, what's the right word? Uh, condemning themselves. Oh, that's still not the right word, but you know what I mean. It's just not coming to me. You couldn't do that. But he goes ahead with it. Tell us if you are the Christ the Son of God. Now, Jesus, in his Jesus way, doesn't answer directly. He says, yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. And in his Jesus way, he goes on to explain that it's much more than you have implied by referring to himself by his favorite self-title. In the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. One commentator said that this is the Christological climax of the Gospel of Matthew. This is Jesus in the midst of this terrible offense saying, I am God's Son. I'm the Son of Man and I'm the ruler of all the world. And even though you think you have the power over me, I ultimately have power. He's referring back to Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 and 14 and Psalm 110 verse 1. They had trapped Jesus, however, and he had admitted it. The third question on your outline is, how do I feel when trapped? I don't think there's anybody here that likes to be trapped, is there? I mean, there's that silly new Geico commercial about, you know, um, if you like to hit your head on a, you know, whatever, you also like to pay too much for car insurance. And the people do all these crazy, stupid things and are hurting themselves. And then they laugh about it. Ah! it's so forgettable I don't even remember the lines I just kind of go and look at my iPad while the commercials are on during a football game or whatever but nobody likes to feel trapped 
Just like the ridiculous Geico commercials make fun of people that don't like terrible things to happen to them. We don't like it when somebody's got us hemmed in. We don't like it when we've got nowhere to go. Our dog Hudson gets feisty and he wants to play. And the funny thing is, many times it's after I've, uh, you know, put the kids to bed at night and I'm coming up the stairs and he's waiting for me at the top of the stairs with his paws hung over and he's kind of perked up and he's ready. And I know he's ready to go just by his posture, right? And as I get closer, he kind of gives me the hurr because he's real tough like that, right? I mean, he's a 40-pound golden doodle. He's a fluff bucket. But he thinks he's tough, he says, and I'll come up and I'll pat at him and he goes and he jumps up and he runs around a little bit and I chase after him and we run around and run around I'm sure our kids are going what is going on up there what is all that noise and Melanie just sits there doing whatever she's doing as I play with Hudson and get out of a little bit of his, his energy before we put him to bed in his crate for the night right but here's the thing I can you know play all big with Hudson and make him kind of run down but if I try to get him cornered, man, he's going to find any way to get through there, isn't he? He's going to slink through this way or slink through that way. And he's really fast. And then he'll go and hide under the piano. Anytime he's done something he shouldn't do, he's hiding under the piano. If you come home and he doesn't come to greet you because he's hiding under the piano, you're like, what did you do? You know, you're looking for evidence of the crime. He doesn't like to be trapped, but he also knows shame. None of us like to be trapped. Leviticus 19, 35 through the way. You don't like it when injustice happens to you. Listen to what Leviticus 19, 35 through 36 says. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measurements of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah and a just hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. From going back to the very beginning, God said to his people, be just, be honest. Amos 5.24 says, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. That's not what was happening to Jesus. Injustice was what was rolling here. Proverbs 21.3 says, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. God wants you to do right more than he wants you to serve him. Not to trap people, not to corner people. Not to lie about people. God calls us to live a perfect, sinless life through Jesus. Let's go on in our scripture. Verse 65. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He's spoken blasphemy. We don't need any more witnesses. Look, now that you've heard this blasphemy, what do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. This is your fourth point on your outline, and it says that Jesus was condemned hastily. Well, the trial was probably going on maybe for hours as they're trying to bring up false witnesses. But when it comes down to it, it was a hasty condemnation. There was no deliberation by a jury. It was one man saying, he's done it. We've got the evidence. Let's push this kangaroo court through and get done with this thing before daylight and before anybody comes to see us. They were doing this trial in the middle of the night. You do things after midnight because you're hiding. As somebody once said, nothing good happens after midnight. So they push it through. And they say, he needs to die. Your fourth question on your outline says, why do I hate injustice? So they've unjustly accused him with false witnesses. They've framed him. And if you're like me, it just makes you angry. 
There's something about injustice that I don't like. You think it's because God put it in us? That God built into every person, whether they're a believer in Jesus or not, a standard of right and wrong. And we know when right has happened and we know when wrong has happened. We know when somebody has been unjustly accused or tried or sentenced or condemned. And it's just the way God wired us with His image within us. Micah 6 8, write that one down. Some of you know it, but probably more of us should. It says, Mankind, He, God, has told you what is good and what the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Three things God asks of us according to Matthew 6 8 to act justly. To do the right thing in every situation, no matter the cost. To walk humbly. To love others and put them above yourself with an other short of love that's God-powered, other-focused, and self-sacrificing. And to love faithfulness. That you love God's faithfulness. You love the faithfulness of others you see around you. And because of that faithfulness, you're always going to try to walk humbly and you're always going to try to act justly. Because you want faithfulness in yourself too. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 17 and 18 says, O Lord, you hear the desires of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. So that man who is on the earth may strike terror no more. We live in a wicked world. I don't have to give you examples of the wickedness of this world and how people can do terrible things to other people in the name of their religion, in the name of whatever felt good, or in the name of whatever they want. But God says that He's the Father to the fatherless and that He'll bring justice eventually. Eventually. Let's go on in our passage of Scripture, the last two verses. Matthew chapter 26, verse 67 and 68. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fist. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? It's like adding insult to injury, except in this case, they were actually injuring him physically as well. They've had this unjust trial and false witnesses. They've cornered him with lies. And now, instead of moving ahead as they should, your fifth point on your outline is that Jesus was treated brutally. You may know, obviously, the rest of the story. The way he suffers at the hands of the Roman soldiers and his death on a cruel cross. But it begins right here. Again, they're breaking their own rules. It shouldn't have began this way. They shouldn't have touched him, much less spit on him, struck him, slapping him, and then mocking him. Mark tells us that they blindfolded him too. So that helps us make sense of 
when they asked him, Jesus, who struck you? Because he was blindfolded as people were beating him up. We may not have known the pain of someone physically abusing us. I think every one of us has known the pain, however, of someone emotionally abusing us. Even spiritually. Using their position or authority and hurting us. Jesus took this and he was treated brutally. Your fifth question asks, what type of pain hurts worse? Physical pain, emotional pain, Spiritual pain, I guess it's all relative. But frankly, if you ask me, the pain of a broken heart is much more than the pain of a physical heart. Jesus took all these things for us. Before you put up your Bibles, I have one more scripture passage I want you to read with me. And that's in Hebrews chapter 4. So Hebrews chapter 4 is towards the back there. Get through First and Second Timothy, Titus, and then you get to Hebrews. Forgot Philemon. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Excuse me, verse 14. The book of Hebrews is written to Jewish believers in Jesus to help them understand how Jesus fulfilled the law. And so it refers back to Jewish ideas and customs. And that's where you have this beginning part in verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith of we profess. So you have to read everything that came before that to get why he's saying the therefore. All the stuff that's going on and all the ways God is taking care of us. But anyhow, we have the summary statement of Jesus, the great high priest. And then listen to what it says in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. What this is saying is that Jesus has been hurt in every way we have, physically, emotionally, even spiritually. He's been tempted to sin uh, in the midst of all those things he's faced, yet he was without sin. Look at verse 16. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That summary statement is saying to us because Jesus has been treated unfairly, because Jesus has been sinned against, but because Jesus was perfect and sinless, He provided a way for you to be able to have a relationship with God. And you can pray to God at any time. And you can call on God's Word all the time. 
And you can trust that God who has called you is faithful no matter what other people do to you and no matter what circumstances you're in, no matter how unjust they are. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we hate to see all that Jesus had to go through of wicked and unjust men. But we do find comfort in the fact that as he suffered, he still remained sinless. And because of his sinlessness, he was able to pay the penalty for our sins. And God, it's our prayer that if there's anyone here who has never trusted Christ as their Savior and needs to do that, they would do it today. And God, it's our prayer for those of us that are feeling the weight of being treated unfairly or unjustly or being lied about somehow, even this morning, that we would confess our part in that to you, but that we would be filled with courage to have faith in you in the midst of the terrible situation. So God, we come before you in Jesus' name. Amen.